Now today, um, and just kind of so happened this way, uh, um, we're going to kind of do a just kind of a uh, a recheck of where you're at. Um, this is obviously one of the seven series, and you will teach this, but you need to be aware of it too. And, you know, we've come so far in our institute, and uh, we're going to start moving into some, uh, some of the books here next time and start looking at those, and then we're going to uh, get uh, into some of the other stuff that we need to get into. But I want to, uh, you know, I wanted to take today, and I want to talk about the uh, seven stages of spiritual growth. And, um, and I want to uh, put it into the context of where you're at with what we're trying to do here. And I know that we have this in some of the lessons, and uh, some of you probably even taught us. It's one of our standard teachings that we, we use and we follow. But I want to, you know, I want to put it into a thing where you can, you know, for your own personal, uh, where you're at with it all. And, you know, with, without a doubt, uh, the spiritual growth of a child of God is the number one thing that you, you have to do. And every, everything we do is part of a two-point process. Obviously, we get people saved. But after we get them saved, then we need to get them to grow. And uh, it's a thing where that's what any church ought to be doing. Unfortunately, most churches, you know, don't, don't do that. Uh, in our church, especially in this class, but, but throughout the church, I, I never make any bones about the importance of a New Testament local church. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where we need to, uh, you know, we need to always see how the, the value of that is, that what God is putting and what he's doing in our lives with it. And, uh, you know, we've moved way off of center of that today in Christianity, and nobody sees the value of the importance of the local church. The local church today has turned into a community center. Uh, it's turned into a social arcade. Uh, where an entertainment platform, and and, and that's part of the, the Laodicean church, and unfortunately because of that, you know nobody nobody really gets developed in the Word of God, you know. And it, I watched it start uh, back in the seventies when I got saved and started going to church. All the, you know, this idea of a mega church, everybody. Uh, taking Baptists off their names, and and everybody wants the the mega church concept, and it's the prevailing spirit today in churches. What these guys don't understand that that there was a there was a mega church explosion in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, only it wasn't with the evangelicals at that point in time because they weren't really in existence yet in the sense the way they are now, but in the Baptist mindset, <clears throat> and you had. Uh, you know, you talk about mega churches. Jack Hiles was in Hammond, Indiana, and uh, Jack, Jack Hiles' his, his, his church ran 10,000 people. Dallas Billington in Akron Baptist Temple, he ran close to 10,000 people up there in Akron. And uh, Baptist churches across the country, uh, were that was their goal. And, uh, you know, my home church, Canton Baptist Temple, probably ran 5,000 <clears> at its peak point. Everybody wanted that. And these guys today that 
are building the mega church concepts. It's like I said last week, they've never learned from history and they've never learned from the mistakes of others. So they're trying to reinvent this concept that everybody, because they don't understand history, they think it's a great idea. Uh, the megachurch concept failed miserably uh, out of the 60s and the 70s. If you would go to Akron Baptist Temple today, who at one point ran probably 10,000, uh, they probably are hard to get 15,000, 2,000 people in the same spot. I know the Canton Baptist Temple, where I was from, that ran about 5,000, you know, they probably run 1,000 uh, on a good day. All of these churches have just diminished, and many of them, you know, the, the key megachurch in my day was the Temple Baptist Church in Detroit, Michigan. And it was the, one of the churches that J. Frank Norris, back in his day, had started. And J. Frank actually was pastoring two churches. He had one in Texas, and he had one in, in Detroit. And he would fly back and forth uh, between them. He'd preach one Sunday morning, and then he'd come to, down and preach the, that Sunday night at the other. And those were two mega churches that he established. After the big split, and the Baptist Bible Fellowship began to be in existence down in Springfield, it, it, gave, it came from the Norse split. A guy by the name of Beecham Vick, who was Norris's assistant, took over uh, the Temple Baptist. And that became the megachurch and the, and the center. Uh, that became the mecca for Christianity. And that church up there was the dynamo by which fueled all the other churches. It was the template that every church wanted to be like. And Temple Baptist Church, you know, was there for many, 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 many years and was a mega church in its concept. Today, it's completely gone. Uh, the remnant few people have moved and started another church by another name. They're probably not even Baptist at this point. But the concept of the megachurch was a disaster. And one of the reasons it was a disaster is because it never trained anybody. It never, it, it's, it's, the, the key phrase was nickels and noses. Uh, they wanted money and they wanted people, but they never did anything with them. There was no discipleship. If you had a desire to go into the ministry and be trained, there wasn't one local New Testament church that trained its own people. They all were dialed into Bible colleges, and it was a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, where the pastor would send all his people like the Bob Jones University, Tennessee Temple, Springfield, wherever his alliance and his allegiance was. And after you sent so many people down there, then they brought you down, made a big to-do, had you speak at a graduation, and gave you an honorary doctorate degree. That's what everybody wanted. And uh, the local church completely failed. And it's failing even more miserable now because back then, at least in some degree, they had a Bible. We don't even have that today. And in both cases, what is failing is the fact that nobody is training anybody um, that in the Word of God. It's just, they're not. And uh, it's, it's a failed endeavor, and that's why uh, you're seeing the problems uh, that we have. You know, this church has always been built on the New Testament concept of, of the local church and, uh, and its importance. It's the only vehicle that God operates through. 
and the idea that we can get some para-Christian organization like a Bible college or something going on out there that is not under the structure of a New Testament local church will always lead to heresy. I'll tell you the reason. Nobody today wants accountability when it comes to the Word of God. Everybody wants to do their own thing. Nobody wants the accountability of a structure. And I want to tell you something. In the Old Testament, you know why God did what He did with the nation of Israel the way He did it? To the extreme? Because they needed a structure as a nation. Now, fundamentally, that same structure, as far as the theocratic relationship with God, would work in any nation. But he knew that they needed a structure. And the reason why in the New Testament he gave us the local church is because he knows we in the New Testament need a structure. And when you get outside of that structure, you're messed up. And it happens all the time. And, uh, you know, we saw Thursday night, and, you know, Thursday night just confirmed for me that this is what I, because I was just a little on the fence. Thursday night confirmed to me in the great question that somebody asked about Samuel over there in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And, uh, and, I, and I talked about it. You know, that's what, that's what we do. There, there's, no church today is going to build uh, a great mega church that's going to do anything for God because of where we're at in the times of the Gentiles. 1 Samuel 3 is the perfect picture of the Laodicean church where the candle of the Lord has been gone out. And all we can do, as corrupt as it all is, all we can do, and we can still do it, is build Samuels. And that's, that's what we do. And I gave you those three things in there, you know, uh, which I want to talk about today. That first of all, Samuel, the Bible says that he grew. You're going to have to grow. But the only way you're going to grow is by not letting any of the words fall to the ground that God gives you. When you grow and you keep the words, then what God does through the process of the structure, he establishes you. If you and your ministry are not established within the New Testament local church, then you're wasting your time. And through those three things, the Bible says that God revealed himself to Samuel. And if you put those three things in your life, and this is why we want to talk about this today. We've been now a couple of years here. We're going to move into some deeper things here in the next couple of months. And I want you to, you know, I want you to stop and consider, you know, your growth. You know, where are you at in your growth? You know, um, and, and I want you to consider the words that you're getting. And then I want you to realize that the only way you're ever going to be valuable through this growth process is for God to establish you and the only way he's going to establish you is when he reveals himself to you. And I want to show you the seven stages of spiritual growth. And actually, and I've never really taught it this way. I've just put it out in a, in a standard operating mode of here they are. But I want to take it a little deeper today and, and give it to you as it can fit to you personally. And I want to show you uh, the, uh, each, each aspect of this as God uh, grows you, you get his word, and then he establishes you, and then he reveals himself to you. Now, <clears throat> what I'm going to give you in these seven stages of spiritual growth is exactly, if you're a parent, what you ought to be building into your child. Uh, there's a little little difference, not much difference between growing up a child of God as a Christian and growing up your children in your own family. 
to be what God wants them to be. And you're going to follow the same uh, five-point aspect. And uh, there's going to be, even though there are seven stages of spiritual growth, within those seven stages, there are five concepts that you want to develop in that child, which are the same five concepts as you grow spiritually, I want to develop in you. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're going to look at them. First one is discipline. You have to teach your child discipline. The second one is relationship. Once you establish a platform of discipline, and remember now, the word discipline comes from the word disciple, or maybe the word disciple comes from the word discipline. So once you establish that, then you begin to build the relationship. There can be no relationship built with a child or can no be relationship built with God till you first discipline yourself. The third aspect then will be fellowship. Through your discipline and your relationship, then you develop a fellowship. And trying to have a fellowship without a relationship is trying to build a, a love affair with somebody you don't even know. And then the, uh, the fourth one is leadership. And when you get your child to the place where they're 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, probably on the latter end, that's when you want to develop uh, the leadership skills in their life. And, and, of course, there's ways that you do that. And then, of course, the last one is the ministry stage. You know, I, we, when in discipling people, we have four goals that we do. You know, obviously establish them in the Word of God, establish other people, establish them in our church. And the fourth one is to establish them in ministry. That's why I like that when you take somebody with you to disciple somebody, oh, and, and while I'm thinking of it, uh, grab, somebody, uh, grab somebody to do Gary with you. You know, maybe two, I don't care. It'll be good for him, be good for them. But you can pick them. If, you know. He's going to start discipling somebody that's really a good guy to disciple. If you want to get in on discipleship on the base level, then see him over there, okay? If you're here today. Somebody, I can't remember who people have come to me all the time and say, hey, next time somebody does something, I want to be part of it. There's an opportunity right there. This guy, he's going to disciple. He's a great kid. He really, guy, not a kid. He really wants to learn. And so, okay, two, one or two guys. If you want to do that, see him here before you go home today. Because um, I don't want to put more than two. So once you, once you get to that point, obviously the goal is to bring them back around into ministry. So once you disciple somebody, then I usually encourage you to go through the next person, that person disciples with them, and then teach a couple of the lessons. By the time you do it the second time, then you're good to go on your own. And that's, we try to bring you right back into it. And that's what spiritual growth's end goal is. The end goal is, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks, God's begun a good work in you and going to perform it in the day of Jesus Christ. You have to, uh, that good work is ministry, allowing God to use you. Now, I know you're all different. You all have different gifts. You all have different patterns of your life that God is going to use in a different way. That's what makes any ministry unique. If everybody did the same thing the same way, then there would be no diversity. The thing that makes this church strong is its very diversity. And that's what makes any church strong. Everybody recognizing what they can contribute and then fully contributing it. And it's, you know, it's a thing where that's just how it works. 
And, uh, but these are things you've got to look for. These are things that you have to see in people. And then you have to learn how to develop those things. So I want to, I want to bring you through these seven stages. And the first one I want you to do is to come over to, uh, first Peter chapter two. Verse 1, wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. And then he says this, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And the verse is always misapplied and misread because they don't see the punctuation. It's usually read as as newborn babes desire to sell milk of the word. It's usually put out there as as a baby has to have milk, you have to have milk. That's not what it's saying. Look at the comma there. Uh, as newborn babes, comma. And then it says desire the sincere milk of the word. As a baby, you have to have a desire for the milk of the word. It isn't just that a baby has to have milk. It that baby uh, has a desire. And the key to the first aspect of your spiritual growth is your desire. Your desire. Now, I know it starts out in the Bible with milk. Milk is the basic things of the Bible. And it graduates up to, as the book of Hebrews says, meat, which is doctrine. And the Bible even calls it strong meat, the book of Hebrews. So, but everybody starts out at the same place. Everybody starts out uh, as a baby, a baby Christian. And... You know, this is probably the most crucial point in, um, in a Christian's life. You know it's the most crucial point in, in your physical baby's life. Uh, many of you have had children, having children, have just had children, or you're planning on having them in the near future. You know that once you, that baby is born for quite a while, you have to be there for every, every aspect of its world. You know, you can't leave it and go to the store. Though some people do, uh, you know, you can't, if it's asleep and you're at the grocery store and it's August and it's 120 degrees, you can't leave it in the car where you go in. Uh, but they do, uh, a baby desires constant care, uh, watch care. And of course, one of the biggest black market deals is, is babies, stealing babies and then reselling them to parents who can't have kids. And you know, that goes on all the time. So a baby needs not only needs uh, protection uh, because that's exactly when um, you know things are going to start to go go wrong, and we've all seen this. How many people have we lost over the years that just got saved and right with God and decided they're going to really do what's right, but they're a baby, and then suddenly God brings some old boyfriend or girlfriend back in their life. They hadn't seen him for 150 years, and suddenly you know, they show up again and they're not, they're not old enough to be able to, and they don't have anybody to guide them and help them. So they fall right back into it. We've lost 
you know, you lose them that way many, many times. And so it's a thing where they, they need to have that protection around them. And that's why when we disciple somebody here, years ago I didn't do it this way. It's something that you learn in time. I just had one-on-one. But now the value of two or three people discipling the same person forms that, that accountability structure, that safety net, that people are there uh, to, to catch and make sure that one person doesn't have to do it all. And, of course, babies need that constant care. And young Christians, baby Christians, uh, do the exact same thing. And then he says over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's look at that one. Now, here's a, a more practical example of, in, a, in a Christian sense, like what we deal with. 3.1, Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Um, one of the greatest contrasts that God has given us to see this in action is the contrast between the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians. The church at Corinth is, in 1 Corinthians anyhow, is much like almost every church you're going to find today. Uh, I always liken it to the charismatic church because of their issue with tongues, but, but it, it's beyond that even. It's, it's, it's an exact picture of where New Testament Christianity Baptist churches are today. They're messed up on just about every fundamental doctrine that there is. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians is multiple times through chapters, uh, he's dealing with their issues. And he makes no bones about it that they're a bunch of baby Christians. And they've never grown. And the worst church you'll ever get into is a church that is a large church with the leadership and everybody in it not growing past stage one and being run by a bunch of baby Christians. It's an absolute nightmare. This was the church at Corinth. And it's a thing where the contrast between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is like day and night. Someplace along the line, they get it pulled together. Not everybody, but the majority of them. And they want to do what's right. So then Paul writes 2 Corinthians, and there he teaches them the aspect of ministry at that point. And where in 1 Corinthians, every chapter is a rebuke of something they're doing wrong. In 2 Corinthians, every chapter is a key chapter of, of what to do right in the church. And it's an incredible contrast between the two. And I say that because when you begin your first baby steps as a Christian, when we disciple you, work with you, this is where we enter into the discipline stage. This is where you have to discipline yourself to some things. Uh, and, of course, as I already said, this is where the word disciple and discipline are, are connected to each other. This is where that you need to learn the first baby steps of, of structure in your life and self-discipline yourself. And, and, and that can be hard today for people because most of the people in the world have no self-discipline at all. And so it's hard for them to to dial it down from a lawless, undisciplined lifestyle to a disciplined life in Christ. 
And when I say that, I'm talking about in the fundamental basics of things. Getting it to the point where you, you, you learn those basic structures of discipline. And this is why, if you notice in our discipleship lessons, it basically uh, builds itself around the 10 basic areas that will form uh, for the rest of your life what you're going to discipline yourself in. Uh, it, it talks about salvation, making sure you understand what salvation is. It talks about eternal security. It talks about baptism. It talks about, you know, all of the fundamental aspects that a, a new Christian needs to discipline himself. It talks about giving. It talks about ministry. It talks about other people. It talks about the Holy Spirit of God. And it, it gives you all of the tools in a real fundamental way that you start that process of building discipline in your life. And uh, everybody comes through this. Unfortunately, uh, when there is no discipleship or there is no program of spiritual growth, this is where most of God's people stay. And they become like the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth is typical of what we have today in Christianity. Mega churches with hundreds of people and nobody knows anything about the Bible. If you took all that... 2,000, 3,000 people and put their knowledge about God in the Bible in a bucket. You could get it in a court jar. It, there's just nothing there. It's absolutely, totally void of any truth because of the fact that there's no process. The church doesn't see it. It's caught in that megachurch concept uh, that is the same way it was back in the 70s. And they've never learned it because, as I said last week, wise in your own conceit, you never you never look back and see what did work and what, what didn't work. And so we, you know, we repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. And uh, it's a thing where that's what the church does. The church will give you, and I can't emphasize this enough, what the, church, what the true Bible-believing church will do for you is give you, when we talk about being established, we're talking about being established in established truth. Um, not some kind of fly-by-night stuff that you get off the Internet. You have to, you have to be really stupid to be a hyper-Calvinist. Hyper-dispensationalist. Uh, hyper same thing. You have to really, really, really be an idiot to get into that. And it's a thing where, you know, but again, they don't see where it started. They don't see where it began Therefore, because they have no structure that gives them established truth to judge the wrong from the right, that's how they get into it. And that's, it, it, it happens all the time today. And that's why, you know, this church will never deviate from established truth. You've got guys out there that, you know, they talk about the King James Bible being the best translation, uh, but they, they don't think it's perfect. And you got guys out there that believe that uh, the King James Bible is the best translation, but you can still go to the Greek and the Hebrew to get whatever you want to get out of it to help you help you with that. You, you got guys out there. I talk to them. They believe the King James Bible is the best, but they believe that there can be another translation down the line someplace that could be equal to or better than, even though that's the best one we have right now. All of those positions is a guy talking about something he knows nothing about because he has no established truth in his life. If you had any inkling of established truth about the Word of God in the book, 
you'd never say something like that. You'd know why there could never be another one. You'd know why the Greek and the Hebrew is worthless. You know why all these ideas are coming up with just will not work. But it's because of the fact that every one of them uh, are, are, are either in a, a non-biblical New Testament church or they're in no church at all. And, um, and it, it's, just the way, it's just the way that it works. So the first stage as a baby is discipline taking that person and, and beginning the basic fundamental aspects of discipling them and in that discipleship, forming up their, their discipline structure. And that is absolutely key. Then he says in 1 John chapter 2, let's turn over to 1 John. Now, the book of 1 John is where he says in 2.1, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, the second aspect, once you begin to build discipline, will be to build a relationship. And the book of 1 John is a key book on, on the next two aspects, not only relationship, but um, about fellowship. You're told, you're told that the theme of 1 John is love. And I don't care where you go. I don't care who you listen to. Whatever book you read on 1 John, whatever guy gets up and starts to talk about it, he will tell you that's the theme. And of course, uh, we know that, that that's not the theme. Uh, we know that uh, uh, through the book here, we will find the key is to know. And, you know, over and over and over again, it talks about the fact that we are to know God. We are to know him. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on about knowing who he is. And you'll find that that relationship will be built on knowing him. And fellowship then, a little bit later on, will come in based on the relationship you built with him in knowing him. Knowing will be, uh, relationship will be based on knowing. Fellowship will be based on loving. And this is so typical why they think that the theme of 1 John is love because God's people today have no clue of their spiritual growth and they're always trying to love something, in this case Christ, without knowing him. And that's the failure and it'll always fail. I mean, over and over and over and over again, you will, you know, you'll see that concept. 27 times in five little chapters, you'll find the word knowing or to know. And, uh, you know, how somebody could miss that and think that the idea and the theme is love, I, I, I don't, I don't have, profess to have a clue other than the fact that you don't know what you're doing. So we now see that he says in 2.1, my little children... Um, these things write unto you that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now we start to see some basic key words that will give us basic understanding by which we can build a relationship. 
up there it says we have an advocate with the Father. Uh, in the Bible, the doctrine of the advocate case of Jesus Christ uh, is, is a key basic doctrine. Uh, the next word you find here is the word, uh, verse 2, uh, propitiation. The word advocate means to go between. That I was in my sin and I couldn't get to God and Jesus Christ was my advocate. That forms the basic, fundamental, first understanding in a basic form by which you're going to build your uh, relationship on. Then the next word is propitiation. Propitiation is the reconciling of two opposing parties. In this case, God reckon, Christ reconciling me to God through his blood. And uh, Christ being my advocate, going between me and God, who I was an enemy to, becoming my propitiation by explaining to God that I've trusted him as my own personal savior, and then becoming part of what God is. That is the basic understanding that you begin to, you've been in the build in the relationship stage. And this is, and again, there is no, there's no beginning and ending of this as far as uh, a, a hard, fast rule. These things are a progression, just like everything else in the Bible. These things blend together. It isn't the fact that you go to church on Sunday and you get discipled and you get the discipline stage in your life, and then uh, six months from now on a Monday morning you'll wake up and suddenly you're in a relationship stage. It, it, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't, it, everything's a transition, but it builds toward an end. And, you know, once you get discipline in your life, then you're going to begin to build a relationship. It isn't going to be a Monday, Tuesday thing. It's going to be a process. And, uh, you know, First John is the great book that tells us that before we can love Christ, we have to know him. You have to build that relationship. And it provides for us the basic understanding of that we begin to know truly why Christ did what he did for us. And this is why you'll find if you really, and when I talk about the advocacy and the propitiation, obviously there's a lot of other things that go along with that. You got the doctrine of spiritual circumcision. You got the doctrine of, of uh, you know, uh, the blood of Christ. You got, you know, the doctrine of you being sinless once, you're, once you become saved. You start putting all those things together and you begin to build a relationship with him based on what you know is established and sure with him. And this is where it comes from. If I had somebody who struggled with losing their salvation all the time, uh, I know what that problem is. That problem is, is relational. It's relationship-wise. And I would suggest that that person gets into the doctrine of the advocacy, doctrine of the propitiation. I would encourage him to go into spiritual circumcision, the sealing of the Holy Spirit of God. I would go through all of those things, and, and through that, once he builds the relationship on those doctrinal issues, there's no way that you can think that you can possibly lose your salvation. And of course, that's, you know, that's just the way it works. And if his issue is, and I've had this before, that he continually or they continually or she continually thinks that they didn't do it the right way, well, then there's a whole set of verses based on a relationship that, that deals with that aspect. My point is this. Once you start getting these doctrines down in its basic form, 
it will lead you to the right relationship. That, but it has to come through the structure of the church. You won't get it off the internet. And you won't get it to listen to guys' sermons. Or you can learn a lot of good stuff from guys' sermons. You have to get into a church that teaches established truth that will establish you in that truth. And that's going to require you to discipline yourself and be accountable to it and then move up through the ranks, so to speak, of, of, the, of, you know, of, the, of, the, of the relationship. Now, the third one will also be relationship. There's two parts to this. And this will be Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. And he says, For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor uh, Greek. Uh, There is neither nor free. Uh, There is neither male nor female. But you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, This is the second aspect of relationship, where the first aspect of it in 1 John 2 deals with you getting to know him. The second aspect of relationship uh, is dealing with, through that relationship, being able to recognize what's right and what's wrong, false doctrine. Now, you'll remember that the book of Galatians is written to the church at Galatia, that false doctrine has crept in. And they're teaching that, yeah, you have to believe that Christ is died on the cross, but you also got to keep the Old Testament law. And they're introducing, as we saw a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night, another gospel. And of course, uh, this so in Galatians 3 here, you have the children again. And in this book, it's dealing with being able to recognize uh, what's wrong. And um, come over to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children. See that thing? Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So when you enter into this stage of growth, the first part of it deals with your aspect of knowing who he is. The second aspect of it deals with you being able, based on that, to discern what's right and what's wrong and not get caught up and blown about by every wind of doctrine. Now, you see this a lot. And you see this primarily, as we've talked about earlier, with young guys who don't get established in a church. They'll get on the Internet or they'll hear somebody or they'll get into something, and because it sounds good and they have no established foundation of truth, because they don't want to be accountable, they'll buy into it. 
and they'll, they'll become part of that and they'll, they'll think it's the right thing to do and it's the farthest thing from the truth. They violate every protocol found in the Bible on distinguishing right from wrong. And it all comes back to the number one aspect. They don't want to be accountable to anything. And of course, uh, it's, uh, it's exactly what happens. So here we see he's, we're told not to be children anymore, to be blown about by wind of doctrine. Now look over at 2 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll show it to you again. Verse 13, now for a recompense in the same, I speak unto you as my children. Be ye also enlarged. In other words, learn more, grow. Be ye not unleakly yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, and what part hath he that believeth with an infidel. And so now we see that he's talking about not only can you see false doctrine, but you're able to distinguish what's going on here um, that you don't get caught up in the wrong things. And he talks about here in not being unweakly yoked. That's marrying the wrong person. And uh, he talks about real fellowship in verse 14. He talks about light versus darkness. He, he covers all of the things that as you grow in established truth, these things will come into your life that will keep you from making bad choices. And, uh, you know, it's the, it's the separation aspect of your Christian life. There are people, just like there are teachings and doctrines that you need to separate from and make no bones about it. Uh, you, you don't do anybody any favor by, if they're in a, teaching a false doctrine or false something, just saying, well, you know what, yeah, I don't want to go out to eat with you. Uh, I got things I got to do. Uh, you know what, your best bet is when somebody that teaches heresy or false doctrine and you know it, I know it, and they know it, you just simply say, you know what, you're not where I want to be spiritually. <clears throat> you don't believe what I want to believe. Bible says that I'm to separate myself from you because I don't want to get anywhere close to your heresy. So I like you, love you, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, because of the fact that you were to separate yourself from them. And as you grow, you're able to recognize light from darkness. You're able to recognize the sons of Belial from, <clears throat> from, from real New Testament Christians. You're able to see and understand uh, what not to be uh, unequally yoked. And we, you know, we always use that as getting married. And I get that. It, that's exactly in the Bible, being yoked is being married. I understand that. But it actually, uh, more than that, it's lining yourself up with anybody who's not biblical and just staying away from it. So <clears throat> separation in the Bible is what you learn now at this point. And so you go through the discipline stage where you learn the basic fundamental disciplines of being God's disciple. Then you move into the relationship stage where you learn about him, what he did for you. And then you learn 
why he did what he did for you is right versus why so many people out there teaching things that are wrong. And now you don't get blown about by any wind of doctrine. Now you have some sort of a stabilization in your life where you can really know what you believe. And then the, the, uh, the fourth one here will be back in 1 John chapter 2. Now, there is a fine line between relationship and fellowship. I make a difference between the two because there is a difference. You have to build a relationship before you can have actual biblical fellowship. And we think of fellowship as things we do together, you know, going out to celebrate somebody's birthday or going out to eat together or having something this or that or some special occasion. And that is true. That is, without a doubt, a form of fellowship. But the book of 1 John is not only the great book, it's a two-pronged book. Not only is it the greatest book on knowing him and building a relationship, it's also the greatest book on our fellowship. Before it defines for us in 1 John chapter 1, uh, here, verse, uh, verse 7, what constitutes true biblical fellowship. And it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, that verse says that for us to have true biblical fellowship, we have to walk in the light. And then it adds the clause at the end that when we break that fellowship, it's the blood of Christ confessing it that puts us back in fellowship. And that is the greatest definitive verse in the Bible on what biblical fellowship is. Biblical fellowship is walking in the light as he is in the light. And for you to do it as he does it, you have to build a relationship first. You have to know what he believes, why he believes it in its basic fundamental form. I'm not saying in its entirety. That'll come as you grow, as you learn more. But you understand what I'm saying here. And it's the place here, and you hear me talk a lot about in the Bible, the name changes in the Bible, how that when God changes somebody's name, it's significant. And, uh, and this would be the place, um, in my estimation, where God changes your name. And you know I've talked about it many, many times. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing where, uh, it's a point in your life where you're never going back to the world. I'm not saying you're going to do everything right and you won't make some mistakes, but what I'm saying is the world no longer is an option for you. You've totally bought in to what Christ has done for you. And you may struggle with some things, but at the end of the day, um, that is that when you get to that point in your fellowship here and you've come through the discipline stage and the relationship stage and the two aspects of that, and you get to the fellowship stage where now your basing relationship with him is based on your love for him. And you understand that love. And uh, you, you got it down. And you're doing what you're doing now for him because you love him. 
Um, when you develop the right fellowship with God based on the light and loving him in that light, at that point in your life, the world will have no attraction to you. Uh, it'll be paled in comparison. There'll be nothing the world can even remotely offer you that ever will, you know, go along or try to be better than what God has done for you. You now have come to the point where you ain't going back. And uh, I, you know, I look at you and, and many of people in our church, I look at you and, um, you know, I actually see that point in your life. It's one of the greatest blessings of being a pastor, if you know what you're looking for. I actually watch you get to that point. And uh, I actually watch you get to that point that you're done with it. Uh, you know, you have some people that all their life, they just bounce back and forth. They just can't get it together. I mean, they're in, they're out. They're in, they're out. They come for a while for six, seven, eight months, and then they fall back off the wagon again. You, you see it all the time. That's just the way it goes. But you find those people who come up through the process and their desire at the very get-go brings them all the way through. When they come up through the discipline stage, they come up through the relationship stage, and boy, they, they enter into the fellowship stage. And again, this is not something that stops Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. This is a progression of blending as you grow. They overlap. There's not going to be one day you're this and the next day you started this part of it. Uh-uh. It's a natural transitional process just like everything else that God does. And one morning you wake up and you can't know exactly when or where. That switch got, that flip, that switch got flipped, but suddenly it's flipped. And uh, it, everybody sees it. And, uh, you know, I certainly see it. Uh, I see it, you know, I, and that's what, that's a key part of God establishing you in any church. Uh, first of all, the pastor seeing it. Most pastors are oblivious to it, you know. But, but watching you so closely, monitoring you, even when you don't know it, because you want to see what you're going to do with what comes your way. And what happens is, is that it becomes very obvious to me when that person says, I, I got to tell you, in all my almost 50 years, I've never had a person who got to that point ever bailed out of it. It's always up to that point. And I've seen them come and go all my life, all my ministry, and I've seen them get to a point. And I never say anything because what are you going to do? Yeah, you're at a point in your life, but I don't think you're going to make the next point. Give me a break. But you see it after a while. It becomes the patterns are so clear. And you'll see somebody get to a point, but they're just not going to go past that point. And there'll always be something that'll, in time, will pull them off, pull them back. And uh, it's a thing where the desire is not there. And they've never built, uh, they've got a relationship. They know some things about the Bible, but they're holding off the fellowship. Because that fellowship for you and for me, will require us holding nothing back. <clears throat> and again, I'm not saying you're not going to do dumb things. You're not going to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But your desire is going to be, in spite of myself, I'm going to get where God wants me to be. 
in spite of this person, I'm going to get. See, in spite of this circumstance, in spite of what this person does or that person does, or despite what happens within my family or what happens within this or that, I got the desire to get where God wants me to go. That's the key. And, you know, and this is where most of them, uh, if they get this far, um, a lot of them bail out in the first aspect of it. We've all seen that. You know, and, and, and you know, and I, we've seen it. You know, we've got, I've had people in my ministry that, I mean, Farmer's Almanac has nothing on you. I mean, you could plant crops by your cycle of coming to church and then not coming to church. They'll come in. Some of them have been in and out of this church four or five times. <clears throat> and it's always the same thing. <clears throat> they'll get out for a while, uh, you know, and then they'll come back and they'll say, I want to do this, I want to do that, I'm sorry. They'll make some really bad blumberhead choices while they're out of there. And they'll come back, they'll last for what, four months, five months, six months, and then something will draw them back out again. <clears throat> I, I, the, the number is, is in the scores of people in my life over the years. And it's not that they're bad people. It's just the fact they never can get past that threshold. They try to build a relationship and they do to some degree. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. But I want to tell you something. Knowing what's right, knowing what's wrong will not keep you from sin. What will keep you from sin is knowing what's right, knowing what's wrong and loving him more than you do your sin. And they can't get to that point. So it always pulls them back. They are the proverbial Proverbs 26, dog going back to their vomit, the sow going back to her wallow. And they see it all the time. I, in fact, you know, it's, it's almost a projection. I, I say to myself, well, oh yeah, so-and-so. You know what? It's just about time. It's been almost a year and a half. It's about time they make their pilgrimage back to Mecca. You know, and sure enough, I come to church on Sunday morning. Hi, Bob! You know, like you were on a mission field for the last year and a half, you know, and now you're home on deputation. And it's a thing where it's just the way it is. If you spend enough time working with people in the ministry, you will learn why people do the things that they do. It helps you not take it personal. It puts it all in perspective for you. And it helps you balance it all out that if you ever get in a position to help them, you can. But in most cases, you can't. And the reason why, and I just want you to know this, the reason why you see this all the time, and I know many of you have dealt with them. Many of you have dealt with them that you started to disciple them and you never got finished because they, did, they bailed on you. Okay, we know why now. They don't want that. You know as well as I do. They first come in, they're all fired up, and then once you start to get into the lessons and it demands a little accountability, then you start feeling the pressure, see? And then they're gone. And of course it's your fault. It's always your fault. And it's a thing where that's what they always do. <clears throat> and then you'll see them get a little bit farther in a relationship stage, and this is where <clears throat> they really struggle for years. And this is where you find them, usually in the first one, when they bail out, they don't come back. When you get into the second one here, they'll keep coming back in many cases over and over and over again. I mean, I got a couple of people in mind that went back five or six, seven times in 20, 25 years. I mean, it's, it's just like, I think it has to do with the full moon or something. I don't know, but here they come. <clears throat> and they show up for a while, and then you know you know the drill. Off they go again. And it, 
again, it's not that they're a bad person. Some of them are the most nicest, likable people that you ever meet. The problem is they can't make that transition from relationship to fellowship. And where relationship will teach you responsibility, fellowship will teach you to love him more than anything else on this planet. And if you can't break into that mode of it, and, you know, and they all have a pattern. Every one of them, every one of them, <clears throat> if you look at their life, every one of them will have something in it they love more than they do the Word of God. And even though that may be true, they may try to make a run at coming back to church, but it'll be some unsaved guy that they met, you know, or some unsaved gal, and they're not willing to get rid of it. And I know all the answers, you know, you're lonely, you know, you did this, you need that. I get it. I understand. You know what? Let me tell you something. You don't understand the word lonely till you go in your life without a fellowship with Christ. <clears throat> but they all have something more that they love. I've seen it be sports. Uh, I've seen it where they can't get to church because the Chiefs are playing today and you've got to go to the Chiefs game. And I'm not against going to the Chiefs game. I'm really not. But the bottom line is, I, there's nothing that I will do on Sunday that will take me out of church unless I'm returning to my vomit, <clears throat> sick. There's just nothing. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't things that will pop up. I'm not saying that. But <clears throat> to me, I would weigh it very heavily. I can't think of one thing. If my, <clears throat> if my mom died or my brother died, or I don't have a brother, he's dead. <clears throat> if, <clears throat> if somebody in my family died and they were going to bury him on Sunday morning, I get that. I get that. Uh, but it's a thing where, <clears throat> you know, I'm not going to allow anything <clears throat> to come into those times that build toward what I need. And I don't care what anybody tries to say. There is no justification for it. And it's a thing where sometimes you're a better testimony by going to church and not doing what they want you to do than you are by giving in and going to do it. And I've seen that all my time. I had a guy one time say, well, I'm going to the, <clears throat> I'm going to the Chiefs game because I got a lot of unsaved guys and, you know, I can be a witness and a testimony to them there. No, you're going to go so you can drink with them, be with them, and have a good time with them, and then under the guidelines of umbrella of ministering to them. You are, you're just using the wrong spirits. I know how it works, man. And so they'll get to this point, and then this is where they, this is where they fail. And when you get to this point, this is where you'll never fail. I've never had anybody get to this point <clears throat> where they ever bailed on anything. It's all downhill from here. This is an uphill battle to this one here. Once you get into the fellowship biblically, and again, walking in the light as he is in the light, not as you think he is but as he is. Boy, the weight of that verse and what it all carries with it and implies to your life and my life, we could spend the next six months looking at it. The weight of that verse of what that all means. And of course, once they get to that point, it's fellowship. <clears throat> and that is the place where, uh, as he says in verse 13 here, back in 1 John 2, I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have, here it comes, overcome the wicked one. That's what you've done. You've overcome. Yeah. Is that overcoming God changing your name? Yes. Okay. That would be the point where, yeah, you overcome everything in your life, and at that point, God changes your name. 
You ain't ever looking back. You ain't ever going back. You've overcome. And that overcoming is synonymous, thank you, Jenny, is synonymous with God changing your name. And you ain't ever going, you're not the same person you was. Now you're, you're it's to, everything is different. Everything is total. And now it's the things what, uh, and I'll be very honest with you. From a pastor's standpoint, this is what I look for. Everything up to this point is good and I'm all for it. But what I'm looking for is right there. The day you overcome. And I've got a church full of them. I, I, I watch what you do. You, I mean, I know. I'm old and decrepit, and I can't remember where I put my car keys, and I don't even know for sure if I had breakfast this morning, but I know one thing. I can almost, with 100% accuracy, know where you're at because I watch you. It's my job. And I, and I, I take pride in the fact that you, <clears throat> this church is just filled with them. And I have total confidence in a person. That's why when I give you something to do <clears throat> on, a, on a level, uh, on a spiritual level, I don't look over my shoulder to see if you did it right. I don't call you up. I may call you up to say, hey, how did it go, just because I want to see the end result. But I'm not calling up to see if you handled it right. Oh, no, no, no. If you get to that level, if I give you something to do, I have total confidence you're going to do it because I watched you. And I know now that uh, you've overcome. I don't have to worry about you uh, doing something uh, and, and messing the, the ministry up. If you're going to mess it up, it's going to be before that. It's going to be the fact that you, <clears throat> you know, you, you're in the building of the relationship, but you, you're not in the building of the fellowship. The fellowship will carry you over to the next level. And it's a thing where this is what I look for. I look for that. And uh, I know what to look for. I mean, you can't hide it. The Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. And by the same token, even though this is not in the Bible, it's true. If any man doesn't love God, it's known to him. Just got to know what to look for. And when I see that in somebody, then I really try to cultivate that for you. When I see it before you get to that point, I try to help you. I try to give you everything you need to get you to that point, but I can't make you cross through that threshold. But once you do, whatever I got, you can have. Whatever I know is yours. You can have as much as me as you can stand. I, I, I want you to get everything that you can because I know now you're past that point of no return. God's changed your name, and uh, you ain't going back. And I'll say it again. I have never in all my years had somebody hit that point where they ever went back. It's all forward. And they move steadily up into the next ones, which we'll, we'll look at here, the next one. Now, the next one is also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13. And this will be <clears throat> verse 13, I write unto you fathers. Now, you come through the discipline stage, and we enter into two segments of the relationship stage. Then we build the fellowship stage. Now, keep in mind, I know this sounds like point A, point B, point C. It's not. It's all, it's like Neapolitan ice cream. The best way to eat it is to blend it all up. Some people are so uncreative, they eat the strawberry, then the chocolate, and then the vanilla. Oh, no, man, you got to squish those things up. In fact, vanilla ice cream is my favorite ice cream because it reminds me of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Some people just eat the God. Some people just study 
Jesus, some people just thought, me, if you really want to do it, you got to mix it all together and eat it all because it's all one. So the, the key to a real spiritual relationship in eating ice cream is getting Napoleon, a Napoleon, uh, uh, Neapolitan, Napoleon, yeah. the Neapolitan, mixing it all together. And, it, and, and you know what? I, I, I know you probably don't get this, and some of you probably think this is stupid, but I'm going to tell you. Blending those three together will give you the greatest satisfaction of the taste of ice cream you'll ever have in your life. <laughs> because without that, you're just a chocolate, vanilla, or strawberry Christian. <laughs> you want the real taste of real ice cream? Take those three flavors, mix them up in a bowl, get them a little melty so that they are mushy, mix them up, and then eat that sucker. It is the greatest experience other than the day you got saved. And I'm just telling you. <clears throat> when you get to this point, you know, you blended it all together. You're, you're, you got it going for you. And this stage here, then, is the responsibility stage. And notice, notice what he says here. I like what he says about each one of these. They're both found in the same verse. He says, I read unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. And then he says, I read unto you little children. There's the, there's the word with that, because you have known the father. Notice all three of those talking about a different doctrinal position. The little children know the father. Okay. And that's your relationship. <clears throat> and then he says, the, uh, uh, the young men, <clears throat> because you have overcome. He got the fellowship, the world. And then he says, the fathers, because you have known uh, him that's from the beginning. There's some deep doctrinal stuff there. That's Genesis 1.1. That's, that's the whole concept of understanding who God is, Proverbs chapter 8, all that great stuff. So you can see as we come through here, <clears throat> And I call this the responsibility stage because this is when you become invaluable to me in this church and obviously to the Lord because now you take responsibility for things. You know, you get married, which all of you are going to do probably at some point in your life. Many of you have already. When you get married and you have a husband and wife, uh, that's what you are. You're a husband and a wife, but you're not a father or a mother yet. You know, when you're single, you can just do whatever you want to do. When you get married, that gets limited somewhat. But together, you can do whatever you pretty much you want to do. But when you have a child and you become a father and a mother, it severely limits what you're going to do. And that's because now you have chosen to bring fruit into your life that demands you be responsible for them. And in the ministry at that point where you begin to take responsibility for other people that God has put in your life through discipleship, <clears throat> through the counseling, <clears throat> working with them. And again, <clears throat> this doesn't start and stop. This is a ongoing transitional thing in your life that you move through as you grow spiritually. And you wake up, you know, it's a thing where, you know, you go through and you be discipled. It, the way most of you disciple, it takes about six years to disciple somebody. 
you takes a while to go through that with them, and then you go back through it again with somebody else, and you get discipled uh, and, and show them, and you get to teach one or two lessons. Some of you do that a couple of times. And then, and then at some point, I'll say to you, okay, you're going you're gonna to take this now, and you're going to disciple this person by yourself, and I'll put somebody with you. Now, I'm not saying this is a hard, fast rule, but at that point, you've taken the responsibility, you've entered into the father stage. And you may have already been there in your mind and your heart, but I'm saying officially, when you take somebody over and into your world and you start to minister to them, now your responsibility for them. You can't always do what you want to do anymore because this person may need you. They may call you at 2 o'clock in the morning. They may call you when you're getting ready to sit down and watch your favorite television program. They may call you when you're at a birthday party or someplace. And you've got to excuse yourself to talk with them because you're responsible for them. And this stage, you know, this stage is, is, is based on your track record of consistency. You've done everything by the book, as we say. You've been discipled. You learned the discipline structure of things. You went into the relationship stage. You, you, uh, you know what he did for you. And you look at the false teaching that's out there and you're firmly convinced of what you have is the truth. And because of that relationship, then you build your fellowship and you love him and you love his word. And that keeps moving through and pretty soon nothing's going to affect you. And then you move into the responsibility stage. Now you're ready to take part of my ministry. Uh, You're ready to do with me what I do. And this is really the key Every pastor had to work himself out of a job. Not that I'll ever work myself completely out of it, but um, it's a thing where when you have, when you are a pastor of a church of 200, 300 people like we are, and the pastor does everything himself, he's swamped and he can't get anything else done. He can't put the emphasis where he really needs to put it because he's so busy solving everybody else's issues. When you train 60, 70, 80 people to do it as good as he does, and let them do that, and then you just help out where it needs to be worked in and still work with the crucial areas that that only requires your expertise or have the ability to mentor everybody as you're moving through, you get a thousand times more things done. And and that is because of the fact that uh, I've watched your consistency. I trust you. If I give you somebody to work with... uh, And I'll be honest, there are times I had a lady come to me uh, a a couple of weeks ago and want to know if she could disciple this person. And it was an okay scenario, and I'm sure it'll be fine. She had never discipled anybody anybody, before. She's a really good girl, and I really like her a lot, and she's got the desire. My question to her was, do you think you're ready to do that? I didn't say no. I wanted to hear what she said. And she says, yeah, I think I can. Personally, given the person she's working with, I think she can too because she's going to be in somebody who is not way above her level where she's going to get asked questions that she doesn't know. That's another thing that's important. I like to put people with other people that I can surmise that their questions that they're going to ask you are going to be within the range of your questions you can answer. And for most of you, the, the range is limitless. I, but, but in cases like that. And so I said, and I found out later that somebody is going to help her. That's exactly what I want. And she'll do good. She'll do good. 
So even there's times that even I may have a question mark in my mind that I'll roll the dice and go with it because I know that sometimes you've got to do that. Um, but it's a thing where in 98% of the cases, when I give you somebody to work with, I have no doubt in my mind that you've done everything you need to do and you're going you're gonna to take care of it, business the way I would. I've, ever, I've never asked much of anybody in this church. I, I don't put any real demands on anybody. You don't have to, you know, get a certificate to do this or do that. But I've only ever, ever said one thing that I require, and that is that when you take part of my ministry, that you do it with the diligence that I do it with. That's the only requirement I have. Don't get in it and just do it halfway. Don't do it and get in it and not give it your full shot. Do it like I would do it. It's the only requirement I have. You do that and we'll be fine. And we, you know, we, you're an extension of my ministry. And I, I love it. You know, you guys will be working with somebody and uh, that person will confide in you and say, well, now don't tell Bob. First thing you do is call me and tell Bob. You know why? Because they don't understand that we're in this together. There ain't no secret between my people who work with people. That's exactly how they begin to play one end against the other. And you guys have got that grained into you, and it, it doesn't happen. I got a phone call just last week saying so-so told me not to say this, but I'm telling you, the first thing you did is call me. And we learned how to, we figured out how to handle it, see? Because that's what people will do. Why? Because they, they don't want hardline accountability, so they're looking for an ally in their nonconformity to accountability. And when you agree to that, then you give them that. It doesn't work. I won't tolerate it. First time you do it, you're out. And it's a thing where I have a zero tolerance for that because I know how that works, and I know the end result of that, and I'm, it ain't going to happen. We have this thing buttoned down and as tight and as sewed up airtight as possible, and it's all because of your diligence of understanding the structure and how it's got to work. I have total confidence in you. I mean, when you get to this responsibility stage and you're actively in it, I'm in, man. I'll tell you, I just, uh, I trust you with anything. There isn't uh, nothing that you wouldn't, I, you wouldn't, I wouldn't allow you to do that I wouldn't think that you, you know, and if you got into something I thought was over your head, it wouldn't be the fact I caught you couldn't handle it. I'd give you the information on the inside to be able to deal with it and let you go for it. Because that stage is the key stage. Because that's where we start to change people's lives with our lives that has been changed. That's where we start giving established truth to others after you have been established in that truth. And it's, it's, you know, it's invaluable. It's just come to a point in your life where you can't, you can't change it. I mean, it's great. 100% reliable. You have my total confidence in what you do. And I'll never look over your shoulder. If I give some, at this level, if I give you something to do, I, I, I won't, uh, I'll, su- I'll submit myself to where you're at with it. If I give you something to do and uh, I come up against it, then I will, uh, I, I will submit myself to you. I won't override what you're doing. If I put you in a thing and you made a decision and I look at it and I think it was the right decision, even though uh, somebody else may not think it is, I would stand by you and I'd say, hey, look, you was in charge, you made the decision, I'll back you up. Now, if it's a bad decision, I'll pull you aside and say, look, Here's how we can probably do this a little bit better, learn from this. Here's how you adjust this. Let's move on from there. That's part of it, too. I don't have to do that very often. There are times that you'll call me up on the phone, which I, I appreciate, 
and you'll simply say to me, hey, I just dealt with this and I want to call you to see if I handled it right. Almost in every case, almost in every case, because you're at this point, you've handled it just like I would handle it. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those who have come through the established process that have approved yourself, that's been established, and that you're consistent in what you do. Then the sixth one. Now we've come through the discipline stage, the relationship stage, the fellowship stage, the responsibility stage. Now we move into the last two, uh, which is the, uh, uh, this one, number six, is the uh, leadership and the ministry stage. And again, this is not a Monday, Tuesday thing. It's a process. First Peter chapter, chapter five. Verse one, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereunto, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, and neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Now this is the sixth one is elders in the church. Now, there's a lot of misconception about elders. And uh, in the church, there's two basically positions. There is a pastor who is also called a bishop. And then there is the deacon. Those are the only two positions recognized by the church that are positional. But in the spiritual growth realm, then you have elders. And an elder is someone who, as you see here, and this is the definitive passage on it, an elder is someone who, one, has been a witness of the suffering of Christ. They paid their dues. They've been through some things. But they got through those things, and they're partakers of the glory. In other words, they've had some really tough times in their life that God has brought them through. They did the right things, and they got through it to the glory of God. And then he says in verse 2, Here's their job. Feed the flock of God, taking oversight. In other words, an elder is someone in a spiritual position that is invaluable to the pastor. He feeds <coughs> the flock of God. That'll be <coughs> on a very deep level. He takes oversight. He's not a problem causer. He's a problem solver. He's looking like the pastor does at everything in the church to try to make it better. He's not getting his nose bent in a joint because something didn't go his way. He sees the big picture, and he's lined up with a perfect mind and a perfect heart with the same mind and heart as the pastor, recognizing that it's his church, God gave it to him, but also recognizing that as an elder, God gave you, the elder, to the pastor to help him oversee and take oversight uh, of the people and to teach the flock and to feed the flock. Notice verse 3. Uh, neither as being lords over God's heritage. Now, a lot of elders will do that. There is a, there is a uh, philosophy out there in churches today called elder rule. <clears throat> and in every case that I've seen it, it's been an absolute disaster because it's not biblical. And the way it works is this. The pastor comes in. I had a friend of mine who did this, and I haven't seen him for years, but he's had about seven or eight churches. 
He's a good friend of Jim Lake's. Uh, he's a good friend of Herb Kuntz's. We all kind of grew up together, all of us. <coughs> and <coughs> he'll, he'll go in and he'll start a church, and he's the pastor of the church. He'll stay with that church for four or five years, uh, and he won't leave. But what he does after four or five years is he's trained up what he calls his elders. And maybe he'll have eight or nine men now who he designates as elders. So what he does is he turns everything in the church, every decision, every ministry, everything that's happening over to the elders, and the elders now rule the church. He is the pastor divorces himself from all of that and just gets up and teaches on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever his format is. He completely steps out of any aspect of ruling the church uh, and turns it over to what we call elder rule. And uh, you'll see a form of this in the Presbyterian uh, church and some of those other messed up deals, but you see it in Baptist circles. They get this mindset. Every case it's been, it's been a disaster. After about five or six, seven years, they boot the pastor out, and you got no say in it. And it's a thing where uh, you, you know, it, it, truly, these guys who you have just made elders are nowhere near elders in the biblical sense. So you get a lot of babies that got the position of an elder that couldn't rise in their own conceit and prideful. And you got some problems. Um, in the New Testament church, you have one guy in charge. That's the pastor. He's the, he's the buck stops with him. That doesn't mean he doesn't put people around him to encourage him or help him or keep him honest or accountable to them. And he looks to advice for them. It, it, if you're a smart guy, that's exactly what you do. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. God called you to build the church, not some nine or ten elders. God will put it in your heart what he wants to do. The elders get behind you because they have the confidence in you and the deacons in the church find out how to get done what God has told the pastor what he needed to do. That's how it works. And of course, an elder is an invaluable commodity in the church. I mean, to get to the point where uh, they, um, they know the Bible as well as the pastor does. And they, they really do a great job uh, they'll see things with the wisdom. They've got now, they've been at it for a while. And an elder, I, we, the word elder means older, so we actually think that it, it's somebody that's in their 60s, 70s, or 80s, and it can be. But I've seen guys that were in their 40s that were every bit of an elder. And it, it, meant, it goes back to the beginning, your desire, and what you've done with the growth process. And it's a thing where, you know, it's somebody who, uh, really sees the ministry the way it really is, sees the people the way they really are. Someone who has the ability to divorce their own personal emotions and feelings, they don't take sides, they just deal with principles. Everything comes back to the book, and they know the book well enough to uh, be invaluable to the pastor. And uh, it's a thing where uh, they, it, this is where real leadership, and I'm not saying the rest of these from, you know, can't be building in leaders, especially when we get to the father's days. I'm not saying you can't, that's not leadership. It certainly is. But I'm saying when you get to the elders or the last one here, um, the leadership ability uh, is, is, is at its max. You're somebody that really knows what you're doing. And everybody from even the responsibility stage can lead. I mean, you know, a, a leader is someone who sees the circumstances on whatever level he is, and he can lead through it. 
so you find it there. But when we're talking about the epitome of, of the structure of the church and what its foundation is, it'll be the elders, the overseers. Uh, you know, they solve issues. They don't cause them. If the pastor misses something, they see it. If somebody says something that they perceive as a potential problem, they deal with it. Uh, they now have the same expertise when it comes to protecting the ministry that the pastor does, and they're always there, uh, and it's like instead of having one guy and one set of eyes, you've got 20, 30 guys and women, women are elders too, by the way, uh, who uh, talks about the elder ladies. Um, they're, they're, they're always looking, and they're always looking to fix a problem, never looking to cause a problem. And if they have a personal issue, they know how to deal with it. They know how to take it to the right people. They know how to get everything they need to get to make it work. If they have a conflict between two people, they know how to deal with it. Uh, and they're just at this stage absolutely uh, is the leadership stage and the ministry stage that they're at the highest point they probably can get. Everything up to this point is to get you here. And, um, you know, it's, it's, and then the last one is found in Philemon, the last book that Paul writes before we get into the epistles. And it's verse 9... <clears throat> And he says this, Yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I think that's one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Most people would never see it or never think it's a great verse to preach on. But you know what that verse is telling me? That tell, verse tell me that Paul is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means that the Bible, the gospel, and the Lord Jesus Christ became his stronghold. And it brings up the question for every child of God, what is your stronghold today? You're either going to have a stronghold of the world or you're going to get to the point in your life where the stronghold in your life becomes the Lord Jesus Christ and you become a prisoner. That's one of the greatest verses now, and I'll tell you right now, that'd be a great little devotion, man. And in softball or volleyball, ooh, that'd be a hottie. The strongholds in our lives. And you know what? The greatest, the greatest struggles that God's people have today are the wrong strongholds they put in their life. The easiest struggles you'll ever have was when you make Jesus Christ the stronghold of your life. But I want you to notice, he said... And he uses his own himself with this. And Paul is quite old by now when he writes this. You know, he's probably in his 60s, maybe older than that. He writes this around 62 AD. So uh, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's up there. And the aged will be somebody who has the wisdom of God in their life, knows how to use it, the understanding of God in their life. And, you know, this is where uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29 says that the glory of a young man is his strength, but the glory of an old man is his gray head, where a young guy can 
leap tall buildings at a single bound, the old guy can't, but the old guy through experience understands a lot more about life than the young guy that can go Mach 4 with his hair on fire. And, uh, you know, that's Paul himself. I've always looked at it as Paul using himself as an example because of the fact that of all the experiences we could go back in the New Testament and see that he'd been through. He'd been through some things. And it shows me that it's the experiences in life that give you as much wisdom as the Word of God you study in your life. And when you mix and match the two together and you allow the Word of God to give you the understanding of the experiences in life, at some point you'll get to where Paul was and uh, you're, you're the aged. The stronghold now in your life is simply Christ. And, uh, and you, you, nothing is going to change that. It's a thing where you are probably at the final phase of your life. You now probably are at the most final phase of your life, but you're probably at the most productive age of your life. Because now you've completely learned how to redeem the time. Now you've completely learned how to reinvest yourself into people to do for you what you can no longer do for yourself. And you multiply that a hundredfold. And after a while, there's people all over the place because of what you've taught them, what you've given them, what you've invested in them, are now doing the same thing that you would do, except you're getting ready to pass off the scene. They're all coming on the scene. And you stay with it as long as God gives you the ability to do it. This is where most pastors get to this 60-year-old, you know, and they retire. They've been in the ministry for 40 years, and they think that, you know, that's enough time, and they look at what they've done, and they've said, I, well, I've done, you know, pretty good job in 40 years. You ain't done squat in 40 years. Amen. Let me tell you something. The real test of your ministry is not the first 40 years. It's the second 40 years, <laughs> or how long you get for it. And uh, just when you get to the point that you now have something to really offer, you bail out of it. And then you give it to some younger guy who doesn't have a fourth of what you should be knowing, and your whole church suffers for it. Now, in all fairness to those guys, they probably should have got out 20 years ago because they got nothing to give anyhow. But I'm saying in a perfect world, you ought to be, when you hit 65 and or 75, uh, 80, God gives you that long, uh, which is nothing today. I mean, uh, you know, you tell people you, all the time, you tell people, hey, I got this car. I just bought this car. Look at it. And you say, wow. And you'll say, uh, you, and you'll say, how many miles on it? I had a guy tell me the other day, it got 200, a beautiful car. It had 240,000 miles on it. And the next breath was, that ain't nothing today. And he's right. You can get an engine to run 500,000 miles if you take care of it. There's nothing. And by the same token, you know, they've done such a good job with engines, but, you know, it, you, when you hit 65 or 70, that ain't nothing, man. You can go on for until God says you can't go on anymore. That engine will run until you put a rod up through it and it blows the pistons, and you'll go on as long as you can till you blow your pistons. But you'll, you'll go on. And it's a thing where that's just the way it works. And you get to this point here, you really are valuable. Now you've got something to offer. Now people like you can sit down and an old guy who really got it together can just lay out and you can just glean from everything. And that's how you learn. And that's, you know, that's what you do. So 
now you can see this seven stages of spiritual growth. I've never taught it this way before. Usually been a static form, just, you know, bang, 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 bang. Today I wanted to tie it into everything, and I wanted to make it personal to you because you're all here, and obviously you have the desire. And I want you to know in your own personal life what I'm looking for, what you ought to be, your goals ought to be, and then how you get to that point, clearly defining these for you so you can pretty much leave here today pretty much knowing where you're at. And I would not put, any, put yourself under any false assumptions. Be honest with yourself. You can get wherever you want to go, but you know how you get wherever you want to go? It first starts with you being honest where you're at. And then you go from there. So, Okay, well, we'll hold up there.